Welcome to the Contribution Revolution podcast, a revolution in kindness, love, and compassion. We're here to talk about all things nonprofit and celebrate nonprofit heroes. I'm your host, IRS licensed nonprofit expert, Mark Del Gershio, and featuring the founder of Nonprofit Advisor Group, my beautiful wife, Tricia. Be sure to visit contributionrevolution.org and tell us about your nonprofit's goals and aspirations. Your organization could qualify for a grant or other awards. And while you're there, sign the Contribution Revolution Pledge to make this world a kinder and more compassionate place. Okay, let's get started. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the Contribution Revolution podcast. Uh, today's episode should be very interesting. We have a wonderful guest with us, Dr. James Allen, and uh, he's going to be talking about his nonprofit and uh, oh, all things related to that. So, um, James, welcome to our little show here. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah. We are so excited to have you. Um, I, we actually started your foundation in December of 2015. So you're at the seven-year mark. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> that's pretty that's cool really yeah. awesome yeah. it's really awesome you know you were pivotal on helping me get started in the confusing days of uh all the uncertainties of how do you get started in something like this it was great to have your help oh, well You're thank welcome. you so um dr allen i will get this out of the way you are a physician correct and you've been mm -hmm. a physician for i assume quite a while yeah uh, well i guess it's uh, 30 some years. Okay. All right. And you work for a multinational company. And so did you travel a lot around the world when you um, were actively doing that when working in that, that, that space? Yes, I, I moved from a small village and um, a small community in upstate New York to Borneo in the early 90s, and then spent 22 years in Asia. Um, traveled around and uh, was responsible for anywhere from 14 to 17 different countries that I visited and had medical staff that I supervised. Wow. So um, do you speak many languages? I, I speak a little bit of a number of languages <laughs> and I'm still, and I try to try to work on my English, but yeah. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. So um Tell us a little bit about your your nonprofit and start with the name. And because I got to be honest, I <laughs> I struggled with um, with the name that's widely accepted now, right? It was formerly uh, Burma. So so what is the pronunciation? According to Wikipedia, there's like nine different pronunciations. <laughs> so yeah, so it's interesting. Myanmar. I start started going there in '97 and visiting some remote locations. Uh, where we were actually providing uh, water, water wells and uh, clinics and schools. Um, and it was a fascinating country, but the, uh, the name Myanmar is actually, uh, was from an indigenous group that was there for, um, that, that some would say is the original uh, um, population of the country and uh, that the, the name was changed to Burma uh, when it was under uh, as a British colony and a dominant uh, tribe, the Burmans were selected by the British to be their uh, affiliates or their representatives. So it became Burma for that reason. Um, the people in the country later wanted to change it back to Myanmar 
and it became controversial because the people who wanted to change it back were dictators. So uh, it's kind of a, you could say a good thing uh, delivered by a not so good <laughs> mechanism. Regime. So, uh, <laughs> but, but it is the name and uh, officially the name and, and Aung San Suu Kyi has been the leader of the opposition for decades recognizes it and, and encourages people to use it. So I named the organization First Serve Myanmar to link the two concepts, basically service to Myanmar. And of course, it's about tennis and about tennis training for youth. So, um, so that, that's, uh, that's the basis for the name. You know, very interesting. I was reading about the country, and um, and I think most people are probably aware. Very conflicted, um, centuries of conflict, major yeah. site of uh, World War II conflict, the former British colony, like you said, and then um, a number of different military dictatorships that have um, been in power or uh, you know in control for for decades and almost since the country's been independent, which I think was 1948. So what was it like or what is it like to operate a nonprofit? And I've been very curious about this, you know, in a place that is politically very difficult and not very open uh, to, um, you know, democratic uh, ideals, let's say. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's complex and it takes a lot of patience. But I, I want to emphasize that, you know, when you get down to the ground, and you know this so well, everyone knows this, and you're just dealing with individual people. Everybody's the same. Everybody has the same needs and desires and is willing to work with you. When you get up into more formal settings and people get into tribal positions or political positions, then it gets a little more difficult. So I tried to stay down below the radar and work at the village and local level as much as possible. And that's one of the reasons I moved the focus of the project out of the major city into a smaller community, just because it attracted less attention. It, there's nothing illicit or illegal in what I'm doing. In fact, one of the big challenges is in a country that's so unstable, the rules are always changing. And some of the people who have to approve certain things are never certain whether they can approve them. So there's this constant limbo that you're in. And at some point, you have enough contacts and communications with people that people just give you a green flag and say, "Go, just go ahead and do it. We're, when the permissions and permits are going to be available, we don't know because they just rewrote the guidelines. No one's read them yet. And that will happen every couple of years. <laughs> so you, in the meantime, nothing happens. So if you just wait for perfection, Right. It's the enemy of the good. Right. So, right. you know, interesting. So um, talk about tennis. Why tennis? What was how did you get interested in tennis? Let's start there. So uh, I grew up in a, a large family without a lot of money. And I uh, was fortunate that, um, you know, I, I lived in a small community where uh, I was kind of on the other side of the tracks a little bit. But I had a newspaper route when I was a kid and I won a tennis racket in a contest. And that gave me a ticket to go onto the public tennis court where people from the other side of the 
track, so to speak, all convened. And it introduced me to a different way of life and different groups of people. And as I acquired some skills, it basically became uh, a ticket for me to do other things in life. It opened doors. You know, just like that happens with many sports or skills that people develop, whether it's music or entertainment or different things. And so when I look back uh, at a certain point in my life and realized that I, I had opportunities to share, and, um, you know, I thought back on what compelled me and helped me the most. And I saw these needs in many countries that I visited in Southeast Asia. Uh, I'm an avid tennis player. And I thought it's, it's really not about teaching tennis skills to make people uh, supreme athletes in some way, but it's about um, giving them a sense of um, dignity and self-confidence <clears throat> and giving them some skills that they can leverage maybe to do something else. If they can have confidence in this thing, then I'll give them confidence in something else. All right. That's one of tennis. Yeah, you know, um, from what I was reading too, like um, in the country, the literacy rate actually for a very poor country is, is quite high, um, yeah. which I thought was interesting. And we saw the, um, the PowerPoint presentation that you had sent and the pictures of the kids. And we've done so many youth sports programs, mostly operating in the US. I always thought it was, yours was interesting because of, of where it's operating. And um, is, and this is going to sound odd, is tennis widely played there or is it something very novel? Like, is it, do, yeah. are people exposed to tennis at all in that country? Well, you know, around different countries, you see the residue uh, of the colonial masters, right? So um, in former French colonies, you are sure to get uh, a good croissant somewhere you can find. But in, uh, among Southeast Asian countries that have been in the British Empire, or the Commonwealth, Myanmar actually had the most tennis courts, had the most tennis courts of any country in Southeast Asia. Uh, I was fortunate to meet someone from the International Tennis Federation who had done a study on that. So it, um, yes, it was embedded. Um, the, he told me that some of the best players came from one little remote village court where they actually were still, um, where they were playing with rackets, old, old rackets. They didn't have strings, but they made strings out of vines. Wow. And so, <laughs> but those are some of the best players that came out of that country were, were being taught in that remote setting. There is a Myanmar Tennis uh, Academy that is a uh, government um, facility, basically, that is designed to create uh, representatives of Myanmar for inter, uh, international games. And uh, I met with them. I had the good, they have a rotating presidency. And at one point, the president was uh, an extremely helpful, enlightened uh, businessman who uh, helped me in many ways get started in Myanmar. Um, their objective, of course, is different from mine. They, they want to build athletes that can represent um, the country at the Commonwealth Games or the Olympics or something like that. And um, so, but they were very helpful in, in guiding me as to how to start in Myanmar. 
How, how often do you get to go over there and see the program or visit with the youth that are participating? So it wasn't, uh, I, I went at least every year for, um, you know, a week or two. Uh, and sometimes multiple times a year when I lived, uh, I lived in Singapore for 15 years. So I would be in Myanmar two or three times a year. Uh, since I've come back to the States in 2016, I've, it's been, you know, once a year up to the last time was the end of 2019. And then just, of course, in the beginning of 2020, we had COVID. I'm scheduled to go back um, in two months. Fingers crossed, COVID, Omicron, we'll see. But I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, and it won't be possible, unfortunately, to go into Myanmar, most likely because of the uh, political instability and the violence that's going on right now. How, how did uh, COVID impact the program? I mean, it must've been very, um, challenging. It was challenging, obviously, worldwide. Yes. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. Tennis is one of the sports that actually increased during COVID because uh, people could go outside and be at a, a socially distanced and uh, be active. So, um, and the, the program in Tonji is the name of the city in Myanmar where it's active. Uh, where we operate. The, uh, the program stopped for a little while in the beginning of COVID, but then there was such a demand from the kids um, and the coaches that they figured out a way to carry on with masks and distancing and hand hygiene. And the authorities allowed them to do that. So, um, yeah, they, they, it's, if you can imagine, and you might perceive this from some of the photos, this is a pretty in, poor area, but if you have the opportunity to do something that's fun and um, actually, uh, well, I'll get into this separately, but tennis has a, is a special place in many communities and not everybody can play, but these kids can have access to that. So they didn't want to lose that. Mm. Oh, that is really, that's so cool. Um, and was, is the, was the country pretty shut down with COVID as far as, I, you know, I know Thailand's one of the most difficult places to, to yes. go to during this, um, which is bordering country during the whole uh, COVID experience. So is it, was it really locked down as far as people coming into country or uh, yeah. were they a little bit more laxed, I should say? No, it was, la it was locked down. I mean, Myanmar was equally uh, stringent in terms of uh, people coming in and out. Um, so that... Uh, yeah, and I don't know when uh, it'll be open or accessible again for this, uh, for supporting things like this. Um, but I do have contacts and resources in country and in Thailand who help me continue to support the people in the program. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, a side question. So you're a doctor. What, what's, the, um, what's the public health system like there? I mean, do people have health care, access to health care? Is it sketchy? Uh, it's, um, well, it was poor to begin with, and it's been a disaster during COVID. And um, the physicians were among the early groups to protest against the, the military coup and uh, basically went on strike. Um, the military then occupied many of the hospitals because uh, the protesters who were injured would go to the hospitals to get care. And that's where they would collect the protesters and arrest them. 
So then people didn't trust the hospitals. <laughs> so you had this total uh, <clears throat> crumbling of the system. And um, <clears throat> there are private practitioners. There are some very good resourceful clinicians. I've worked with the Myanmar uh, GP Society, the General Practitioners Society. They're very capable doctors. There's a number of really well-trained and skillful doctors, um, but the system is in tatters right now, frankly. Mm. Wow. Is there, I mean, clearly it's a challenge, you know, but is there a person or someone that, you know, you've connected with over there that helps you to facilitate the program and, yes. and to continue it? Yes, several. I've been blessed. Um, so I'll, there's a uh, Burmese or Mian, they, they interchange Burmese when they use it as an adjective with Myanmarese, which is more difficult to say. <laughs> but uh, so, uh, yeah, so uh, my friend Nick was the president of the Tennis Academy at one point. He's a very successful businessman and, and he's a very clean businessman. So the international organizations have um, ways to evaluate the uh, incidences of corruption and cleanliness of different businesses. And Nick is clean. He is uh, a really impressive man and he built a good solid business and he was very helpful to me in because he knew the country part of his business is knowing all parts of the country so he knew which regions or communities i might work with he made introductions for me <clears throat> and he's continued to be a support in that way logistically um, and then i had the great fortune to work with a, a, a young woman who was a general practitioner in a social project that I was working on for my company uh, 20 years ago. And um, she uh, has been very active in humanitarian development programs, as well as being a physician. She's local and she is basically my eyes and ears and does a lot of the legwork in the country for the program. So I know, I know people listen, oh, I'm sorry, I'm being cut you off. People that are listening would be curious as to how you made these connections, and, and again, not everybody was has been embedded in a um, you know foreign countries for as as much as you were during your career. But did you make the connections via um, people that you knew from the business you were in, or um, or you know how did you make those connections? Particularly Nick, I'm interested in, in him because I can I can see the connection with the physician. But how did you connect with a, a, a business person in country? I mean, people would want to know that. Well, it was just, um, <clears throat> actually, I was living in Singapore, which is a very wealthy country. And I thought that I wanted to donate my time to teaching tennis. <clears throat> and then I realized that if I want to donate my time, um, maybe Singapore wasn't the best choice. They have a lot of resources right. <laughs> and I wasn't needed that much. And I was due to go on a business trip to Myanmar the next week. Um, so I just looked into whether they have a, a Myanmar tennis association and indeed they did. And this man's name was listed as the president, you know? Um, so when I was in town, I just asked the staff if they could find this person, see if I could meet him. And uh, it was really funny because they said, 
it has a long proper Burmese name, which is the only way I knew of him. And they said, oh, that's Nick. He used to work with us. <laughs> so um, he'd actually, when he was a young man, he had trained with our company and he'd actually learned a lot of training that he later used to create his own business and be very successful. So he naturally was pretty receptive to a call and uh, that was just a great uh, coincidence. And um, we met, hit it off. We knew some, some people from way back in the company that we both had in common. Uh, and he's a real straight shooter and a very organized, methodical person. So um, yeah, I was very fortunate. But I, I, I would say that if I went to any country, whether it was Uganda or you know Belize or wherever I might go as a newcomer to start, I would start knocking on doors and asking around and, and um, just spending the time to do that uh, shoe leather work. Uh, to me, it's never, it's never failed. Yeah, that's, that's a really great story because, um, you know, people starting nonprofits or for-profits or any new endeavor, they, you know, they really struggle sometimes with getting out there. And we always, you know, say this is a team sport um, and that you need to make these connections, right? And sometimes it's just knocking on doors. Sometimes it's just getting lucky and connecting with the right person. I know we have one from the, one of the nonprofits from the early days. It's been with us probably 12 years and she made a connection with uh, someone in an African country and was able to import um, water purifying systems, you know, and uh, eventually mm -hmm. get to well water stuff, uh, drilling wells. But it was all because of these in-country connections that she made uh, in some cases randomly and in other cases knocking on doors and, and finding the right persons. That's it's so awesome. You've got to get out and do that if you want yeah. to be uh, successful with these. One of the questions I had for you was in the... In, in the beginning, when you were starting this, um, you had an idea of what you wanted to do. Did that change over time or um, did it stay pretty true to what your vision was when you were beginning? It got refined. And I, you know, there were a number of uh, friends and colleagues that I would present the idea to, and it got a little more uh, full and clear. The more times I had to explain it. <laughs> And um, so that's, that was very helpful that I had people who were listening to me and willing to advise. Um, and at one point, I, uh, I, my teenage, well, she was in college, that uh, daughter came back from college and she was studying um, in field that was related to this. So I sent her to Myanmar and asked her to do some contact reach out a work to kind of help develop a business plan. And through that and through her efforts, I, that it sort of crystallized some of the ideas of what's possible and what uh, and how we should present this. I also had discussions with my, my friend, Dr. E, who I mentioned was describing as the, the doctor that I knew in Myanmar and learning what's possible in Myanmar, how the system works. Uh, and that changed a little bit what, uh, what I was going to try and do. Um, and I was going to try and start with actually a younger age group, but then it became clear that we had to move up. Um, I was going to try to work with kids six to nine, and we really needed to move up to maybe 
10 to 13. The, um, in the early day, oh, the long point, I'll be, try to make it quick, but the, in the earlier time when I first started, a lot of kids were leaving school at age nine. Then the government passed a law saying you can't leave before 14 and school is supported uh, until you're 14. Unbelievably, before that, the school only supported education up till age eight or nine. And then the parents had to pay tuition. And then when they changed the law to 14, um, they said it was paid for, but sometimes not really. It was uh, irregular. So people were still leaving. And I wanted to capture those kids before they left. That's the whole point. Keep mm -hmm. them in school. Give them a sense of self-worth, of self-confidence, because they've developed a skill. And, um, and that holds them and prepares them for a, a, gives them a stronger foundation in life. Wow, that was so cool. That's, that's just amazing. So how many, how many children are in the program? Well, right now there's only 20 kids, uh, boys and girls. Um, we were just, as COVID was evolving, we were, had started discussions with another neighboring city, which, which the, the group in Tanji connected me with, or connected me and Dr. E with, so that we could start expanding. Uh, but then COVID shut all travel down and we just couldn't, um, couldn't grow it. So we just tried to maintain the relationships, maintain support for those kids. And we have two coaches. Um, and um, so keep them supported in any way we can, which is because the economy has been crushed and people who were in borderline poverty were pushed into real poverty. Um, what we've done is buy food and, and uh, other things for the, the players and their families and the coaches. Right. I mean, it's a poor country. 50 million plus people live there. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. Uh, what about like if you were, do you have any plans to expand the program um, maybe to other areas? I know other areas in the country. Is it or is it more static right now because of COVID and you know, the opportunities aren't quite there yet? Yeah, the, the, um, I think COVID is going to, the veil is going to lift a little bit and we can, that shouldn't be as big a barrier, hopefully. I don't want to, I don't want to say it's over by any way, but there's a lot of misery and death going on still. But um, the bigger challenge right now in that country is probably the political uh, and um, security and, uh, situation, um, you know, but um, despite those challenging circumstances, I believe we can keep the candle lit and it will get bigger later. I went to Myanmar, as I said, and it, uh, started going every year in 1997 or so, and it was under a dictatorship. There were some years that were more extreme and very dark, and we never, many people left, gave up on Myanmar, and then we saw a blossoming of the beginning of democracy in 2014. It was unbelievable to many people, but it was just joyous that that could happen. And I think it will happen again. Yeah. And, and I'm, and I'm, 
I'm not in any way giving up on Myanmar and I would encourage everyone else to, to actually pay more attention to it. Um, but I also, uh, I'd be open to trying to expand the concept of first serve to other locations. Yeah, so, you know, do you have a, um, do you have a board and is there a succession plan to take over from you? <laughs> Those are needed. You know, <laughs> I've been, I've been working full time in, uh, well, the last couple of years I was in West Africa, so I was, I've been pretty preoccupied, but uh, I, uh, and I, you know, in, in doing this, I've been funding it myself. Um, I need to build a website. I need to build a funding mechanism. I need to bring other people into this. And as I mentioned, I know a few people in the professional tennis world who would be eager to help me. I just need to buckle down, find the time and build it out and, and bring in others. Because I, uh, I think I'd be delighted to hear from anyone who wants to participate or uh, be part of this. Yeah, and I, I think that it's, it's so uh, important to, you know, you've done a great job and you have a very unique um, skill sets, connections, and you've been able to self-fund this, you know, for the most part. But a lot of people don't necessarily have that or they're not in that starting place. And so, you know, one of the things that we really encourage people to do is to really build their network as early as possible with either volunteers, um, potentially donors, getting people to volunteer to put up a website, you know, like 12 year old kids do that now, right? It's not that big. It used to be overwhelming. But... Don't shame me further, Mark, please. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. So it's, yeah, I know. because you got a great program. And, um, and I think that it's something that could expand to, to other, other places, other countries. And, uh, and people need to, you know, educate themselves about what's going on in some of these really troubled spots, right? It, it's not unique there, but um, it, it certainly has been on the radar screen uh, for pro-democracy movements for a long, long time. And yet, you know, it seems like there's a step forward and then two steps backwards. I remember, Tricia, we did one, a nonprofit for a representative. Do you remember from the United Nations? Yes. Who was operating there? It was a long time ago. Yeah, her name is Kim. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so I think, because you really have a dual purpose. The tennis is important. It's great to work with kids and give them that uh, self-esteem and, and just some, some basics, right, about mm -hmm. life. But at a bigger picture, I think you can shine a light on uh, what's going on. People, you know, they're so distracted today. COVID was an enormous yes. uh, impact on everybody's life. And, and, you know, it seems like there's one political crisis after another, some of them right here in the good old USA, mm -hmm. you know, they just, they don't get the attention they should um, in, in some of these places, particularly these pro-democracy movements. You have hundreds of thousands of people protesting, people locked up um, for basically no reason. Like you said, the rules change constantly and uh, they'll use uh, whatever they can, these dictatorships to, to lock people up. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a complex situation in that country. Um, and there are, uh, outside actors that uh, benefit from it being unstable and uh, provide arms and resources to the military to facil facilitate the dictatorship. Um, 
I, I do think that uh, democracies um, could do better in terms of standing up and being visible in unity against that kind of behavior. Um, but that's, uh, nobody calls me from Washington to ask for that advice. So, so. Right. <laughs> that's my personal belief. Is there, um, is there a story that you could share about like one of the children or some of the children that are in the program? Is there something special or someone that maybe touched your heart? There's a couple. Um, <clears throat> there's a couple of kids who are orphans in the program. All of them have been identified. Um, it's not, it, we don't um, prohibit any kid from joining. But we had worked with the school principal um, to learn who uh, were the kids that were most disadvantaged. And uh, there were a couple of orphans who, three, that became involved and um, they're just passionate about playing. And, you know, the last time I was visiting there, um, you know, I, I met with the group. Oh, the, the other issue that's really interesting about Tonji is that's, a, that's the gateway for drugs coming into the country. So it's a huge um, place for illicit drugs to come in from outside Myanmar. And, you know, so I asked the kids, if they know any, any other friends who use drugs? And it was amazing. Every kid raised their hand. This is from eight-year-old kids on up. So we talked about how, you know, if you want to stay healthy and you want to play tennis and you want to be, have a good life, you don't want to do that. Kind of thing. We had a few parents there with us, um, but you, you know, I was trying to also move to a lighter mood. So I also asked, you know, like who's got the best backhand, who's got the best serve, and all. You know, they all know each other, and they were all pointing and laughing and standing up. And um, the smallest person who who has who is the best hustler, who works the hardest. Everybody, everybody pointed to this little guy who was one of the orphans, you know, and, and, you know, he just got up and he was just beaming, you know, with like, he's somebody. So, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing that. Is it, is it hard to get uh, equipment? Um, you know, it's, it's hard to get equipment in country, <clears throat> mm -hmm. but um, you know, people want to donate. So I've lugged equipment up that I had a, a tennis shop in Singapore. Uh, I was friends with the owner. I had a tennis shop in Berkeley where I was friends with the owner. He had some kids rackets that he, that weren't selling. And he just literally said, well, if you carry them. And so I, I'd, uh, carry them all over with me. And, um, you know, we brought in some shoes. I had one friend who got hundreds of pairs of tennis shoes donated. So there's a lot of people that would love to donate. The logistics of getting things in the country. And sometimes, unfortunately, things go missing on their way in. Uh, but so, um, but it can be done. Um, I'd like to get more when, when we, I was struggling to get more tennis balls in actually uh, towards the end, but um, yeah, the logistics are a bit of a challenge, but um, can be done. Mm, interesting. Where do you see it going in five years? I mean, 
what 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 does it look like and how how do you, how are you going to get to that point well i think that um i think the country is going to uh return to a sense of uh harmony in some ways uh and uh try to regain its path towards a better economic stability and social stability within that five-year period. That's my prediction and hope. And with that, um, in, you know, within First Serve, you know, if I, I um, initially, part of my hesitation initially in building a network and building a funding mechanism was that I was afraid, well, what if I can't build it? I don't want to collect people's money or get them involved and then not be able to. So I want to be able to prove the concept. I feel I've proved the concept now. It, it is a working thing. So within five years, I would like to have more regular funding. I would like to have the support of some prof professional tennis organizations internationally and perhaps athletes. Um, years ago, we dreamed of having a, uh, a major tennis player come and have hosting a tournament that would be a fundraiser for the groups and spreading this out across uh, other communities in Myanmar. Uh, I'd love to see kids move through this and continue to play tennis, but also prosper in other ways in their lives and, um, and use this as a springboard for uh, successes in other ways. What, um, what is a way that people could connect with you if they were interested in First Serve Miramar? Well, I, uh, in the slide deck that I left with you, I just have my um, you know, personal Asia doc at Gmail, A-S-I-A-D-O-C at Gmail. Uh, I also have First Serve Myanmar at Gmail uh, account. Uh, so either of those, uh, I, I just listed Asia doc because it's simpler and quicker for most people to get when I'm, it's a verbal exchange, but, um, uh, and people aren't familiar with Myanmar, but, uh, first serve Myanmar is my official, uh, email where I collect, keep the documents and records, uh, every, everything. Um, I am, uh, with your help, we, uh, it is a official 501 C3 and meets all the requirements for that. You keep me in good graces with all the authorities so that that's um, in good standing. Um, but I'd love to hear from anyone with ideas or interests in making this grow further. And I really thank you for the opportunity to, both for your incredible help in getting me started but, and your persistence. You know, every year, you know, I can count on communications with you. You're right behind me. And um, yeah, and for today, I, uh, it, it's a, it's a real privilege and delightful to share news about this. Thank you. We are extremely grateful to have had you with us here today and to have this time to just connect a little more. And we're here for you at any time, whenever you need anything, any way that we can support you, we will be there for you. And it's been a pleasure learning more. Oh, and, definitely. And Mark, you, you had some really great questions. Well, there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did his homework. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I feel very strongly about, um, democratic movements and mm -hmm. people that are oppressed and, you know, there were, 
there were so many uh, low points, you know, in the corruption index, it's like at the very near the bottom. I've, I'm sure you've been in some of those countries and worked in those <laughs> countries, the other ones. And, you know, it's sad to see that, right? Especially in this day and age, like the, the level of poverty, uh, you know, educating people that are on this about uh, the military, the impact of the doctors leaving the hospitals and the military taking over and then people not getting, you know, health care and mm -hmm. adding to a crisis that's already extreme. I mean, these are really pers perspectives that people need to hear, right? And, and, and to learn about. And, you know, in, in reading about the country too, it was interesting because there's been a lot of political talk um, with a number of world leaders, but, uh, you know, I think the other actors that are involved in influencing the country, especially with arms and stuff like that, seems to be uh, part of why the, uh, there isn't the progress that there should be. And, you know, you have so many countries like Vietnam that have uh, really turned around economically, um, you know, and it's mm -hmm. sad to see that this still exists in that way. Yeah, I, I, I have a theory that, you know, that uh, from a national strategic interest, this country doesn't register on the map as being that important to the United States. But I would argue just the opposite, that if you really want to demonstrate a commitment to democracy, what better case? Here's one that actually had a fledgling democracy that was growing, was snuffed out completely illegally just a year ago. And there's a very active majority of the population that's trying to resist that. Yeah. Why wouldn't you help them? Well, I mean, I think we can kind of wrap this, but thank mm. you, James, so much for being part yeah. of this. Keep us in the loop about what you have going on. Um, we're going to get your information out there. If people want to connect with you or if they, you know, they're interested in doing their own programs and want to learn from what your journey has been and your experience. And in particular, if people can help support you in any way. Um, we will definitely encourage them to do that. Oh, you've been wonderful. Thank you very much for this. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you, Dr. Allen. Okay. Bye for now. Take Bye -bye. care. Thank you for joining us today. I hope what you heard will inspire you to join a movement of kind and compassionate people who care about others. Be sure to support our guests and visit contributionrevolution.org for free tips, training, and inspiring stories of our nonprofit love revolutionaries. Remember, it's up to all of us to make the world a kinder, loving, and compassionate place. Signing off until next time. See you soon.